Hello and welcome back to We Are The University, the podcast about the people who make Cambridge University unique. I'm your host, Jenny Haywood, and in this episode we talk to Nicole Horst about her journey from the body shop of a car manufacturing plant to a research project studying obsessive compulsive disorder, and about finding her true passion for advocacy and supporting other young researchers. As this is our first episode recorded remotely during the coronavirus lockdown, we also talk about her role in a volunteering project that's supporting NHS workers with vital protective equipment. So you've had quite an unusual sort of career path, I guess, a journey to get to to where you are now. So I just wanted to ask, how did you go? Because you started out in engineering and then sort of went into neuroscience. So how did you go from a degree in engineering to a PhD in neuroscience? Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of interesting because I think um, around the time when I had to, to make a decision about where to go to university and what to study, um, I was kind of having to choose between something kind of zoology or maybe art or engineering. Uh, and, and I guess probably this is really going to age me a bit. Um, the thing that tipped the balance in favor of engineering at the time was the the emergence of uh, the World Wide Web. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, an interest in, in, in the, the internet and working kind of with computers. Uh, so I, I decided to pursue a degree in electrical engineering at uh, what was at the time General Motors Institute and is now known as Kettering University in Flint, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was also really attracted to the undergraduate program that they had, that they offered there for, for electrical engineering. Um, it, it offered a, a half-time practical experience and half-time uh, in in class experience, um, in class learning, mm. and I did my my practical experience at Ford Motor Company. So oh, I spent right. two and a half years in total, yeah, uh, working in an automotive manufacturing environment. Wow! I think the other thing that attracted me to that institution was a is a relatively small student body, and it meant that I I really got to get involved in in student life and student governance in a way that I might not have done at a bigger institution. Mm. And that meant I actually, by, by the time I graduated, I was on a first name basis with the president and the dean of students and all <laughs> these important individuals, which I think probably set me up for, for um, feeling comfortable uh, working with a range of people within a university um, from, from a very early time point. It was probably quite a formative time for me uh, at Kettering in terms of my long-term interest in university professional service type roles, mm. because I, uh, I was also an officer in our chapter of Society for Women Engineers, uh, our university was about 80% male. <laughs> so I think that's also where I, I started developing an appreciation for the importance of advocacy for underrepresented groups right. or for groups that didn't have a, a voice. Mm-hmm. And being able to sort of stand in and stand up and, and speak for people who, who otherwise weren't being heard. So I had a difficult time envisaging how I would use the degree mm-hmm. after graduating. Uh, it was around that time when I discovered that a couple of the, the professors in my department and one from a different department were involved in collaborative projects in the field of neuroscience. Okay. And so I got to talking to them. So this was a, this was a way to sort of connect what I've been doing with uh, the field of biology kind of kind of stepping back and combining two things that I really liked and I thought it was actually really fascinating that I I might be able to apply some of these electrical engineering principles in in particular Mm. 
to a biological system and in particular the brain. And I, I think maybe in a, on a, a broader level, I liked the idea of working in biology in an area that, that would be of a sort of broader interest to, to other people. So I found I was getting excited about the brain. And I, and yeah. I, I think most other people, when I start talking about the brain, yeah, everyone can link into on that. And I'll, I'll, that element of it, that aspect of it really interested me. So after I graduated, I, I knew that I wanted to pursue a career in that direction, but I was lacking some formal university training in biology, uh, chemistry, psychology, those sorts of areas that, that would be obviously a useful foundation to have for a degree in neuroscience. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I took some classes at Wayne State University in Detroit uh, and paid for that by working part-time in a department store and part-time as a substitute teacher in my wow. former middle and high school. Again, this, this sort of cemented actually my, my interest in going on to study the, the brain. Um, the thing that really stands out in my mind is after I was, so after I had applied for graduate schools and was accepted to the interdepartmental neuroscience program at Yale University, one of the middle school teachers who I often stood in for as a permanent sub or semi-permanent sub had told her seventh graders. So I guess you're talking about like 11, 12 years old. Okay, um, yeah. uh, she gave me permission to talk to them about the brain for an hour instead of oh, teaching right. them about plants. Yeah. And to talk to a room of sort of preteen, early teenagers mm. on a level where they were really getting excited about the, the subject area. Yeah. That actually that actually really excited me as well. Mm. And, and I think I still find that to, to this day, that even though I'm not research active and even though I'm not pursuing a job in, in academia, when I do talk about the brain or when I do talk about the things that I used to work on, I, I do find I can get you know quite quite excited about it still. Because yeah. it's, 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 I think the brain is just innately and endlessly fascinating. Yeah. So and, when, uh, you were, when you were doing your undergraduate degree, you mentioned that you were sort of part-time... Uh, in classes and then part-time working yeah. in a Ford Motor Company. What so? What yeah. kind of things were you doing when you were an undergraduate in a, in a like a car manufacturing? <laughs> My goodness, uh, I worked in a couple. Of, so, so we did rotations for the first couple of years of that program. So the, the the program overall, we were working for three months and then in class for three months, working for three months in class for three months. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually had the opportunity to work in a few different departments. So I worked on everything from uh, automotive emissions to let's see i guess troubleshooting uh issues that were coming up from end users on um like on the electrical system in the car so i worked in a i worked for somebody who specialized in in troubleshooting all of those right. uh, fiddly little electrical things that that come up timing wise again this is going to age me as well uh <laughs> did some work on on y2k prep <laughs> Uh, and my senior thesis project in the plant was around single point lockout systems. Uh, so I was working in the body shop assembly area and the idea of single point lockout was that you would, you would stop multiple robots or multiple stations, like from, from one location. So you would, there'd be less likelihood of you know, potential injury from like a neighboring station if you didn't lock that out. Okay. So just cool. yeah, kind of kind of a range of a range of different things. Yeah, yeah. And then was it when you sort of developed this interest in the brain? Was it because um, the brain is one of those things that I guess it's it's kind of 
a little bit of a mystery to all of us and it's it's mm. always going to be interesting um was there something in particular about it that interested you and led you to neuroscience or was it just that kind of sense of of mystery and intrigue I think it's a mystery and intrigue and it was it was also my interest in biology my long time interest in biology was really around animal behavior so I think it's kind of getting under the getting under the hood I guess to use a, an automotive metaphor and <laughs> to to understand what are the underpinnings, what what are the the mechanics underneath, like what is causing something, to, you know, an outward behavior. You know, I, I I was really interested in animals generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, the brain is a as a system to study. It kind of it linked because the way that the the brain operates is essentially by uh, electrochemical signals between neurons. It was this opportunity to combine this electrical engineering degree mm. in, in a system that uses used electricity as a means of communication using a model that encapsulated this interest of you know in in human and animal behavior so mm. it was kind of all this combination of of things of the perfect convergence of yeah. you know several sciences that that interested me yeah that's interesting because you wouldn't I guess from a kind of outsider's point of view I wouldn't imagine that engineering would have a huge amount to do with neuroscience but actually when you say it like that in terms of electrical circuits it starts yeah. you start to see how yeah. there's a bridge yeah. there actually. I, I worked a, a little bit on a project that was trying to use brain entrainment which is essentially in training the the rhythm of the neural circuits in the brain to to something external in order to to correct a uh, mis, you know, misfunctioning or malfunctioning of, of the brain. In this mm-hmm. case, it's fibromyalgia. So okay. they've shown some, some evidence that if you put a mask with LEDs on it on somebody, yeah. it would flash lights that would change the, it's been such a long time, it would change the, the, the rhythms of some of the, um, some of the brain waves. Yeah. And they felt less pain. Oh, wow. Wow. So yeah, kind of just goes to show how powerful the brain is actually. And, mm. you know, that you can use engineering tools to not just to study it, but even potentially to ameliorate neurological or neuropsychiatric issues that, that, that people suffer from. Yeah. Wow. So what was it then that brought you to Cambridge? Well, my PhD um, was aimed at understanding the role of a, a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex in a, a behavior related to uh, working memory function. Mm-hmm. So the prefrontal cortex is one of the more uh, like more highly evolved advanced areas of the brain, and it's responsible for executive function. So uh, what I mean by that is the, the capacity to to plan uh, for decision making and working memory is is one of these um, executive functions. And working in in a rodent model, uh, I had to sort of work around the fact that the rat prefrontal cortex is is nowhere near as developed as as a human prefrontal right. cortex. Yeah. And I had an opportunity to come to Cambridge to work with with two individuals, actually, um, Professor Angela Roberts and Professor Trevor Robbins, mm-hmm. whose papers I, I read extensively during my PhD yeah. and, and whose work I followed very closely. So I had an opportunity to come and work on a project with them related to obsessive compulsive disorder. And okay. it was this really exciting 
program on OCD that had three components. So we were able to look at uh, forward and backward translation across different species. So from from rat to to primates, where we could look at some of the more the the higher complexity of the brain in the in the primates, all the way up to uh, human patients who actually had obsessive compulsive disorder. So we could look at behavioral tasks that assess mm-hmm. compulsive behavior across these three species and make um, cross-species sort of comparisons and, and inferences in, in systems that we could we could look at causation a bit more closely than, than we would be able to in um, the human subjects. Mm-hmm. So that was a really exciting project to be able to get involved in. And I was able to come over and, and work on that as a postdoc. So what um, what sort of things are you looking at when you're talking about compulsive behavior? So we're looking at the ability of a person to to break away from behavior that when it's no longer giving them a, a desired outcome. Mm-hmm. So so if I talk about it sort of from an action outcome standpoint, which is just sort of how we talk about it operationally anyway. Yeah. So animals and, and people as animals uh, learn how to interact with their environment. They they make an action it produces some kind of outcome. Mm -hmm. If it's a good outcome, you want to do more of that action to get the good outcome. If it's a bad outcome, you do less of that action so that you can avoid an outcome, so on. So just just a very, very basic explanation. So if you're compulsive, you will continue to engage in an action even when that outcome changes so that it's either now a negative outcome Mm -hmm. or it's no longer a positive outcome. Okay. Yeah. And you just keep engaging in that behavior, even though it's not really, it's not really benefiting you in any way. And in, and in fact could be, could be, you know, harmful mm-hmm. or, or causing problems in your life. So if you, if you have OCD at a, at a clinical level, for instance, you're compulsively engaging in a behavior like uh, checking a light, whether you, you know, switch the light off or mm-hmm. washing your hands or, or something like that, it starts to interfere with your ability to, engage in in behaviors that are actually useful and productive okay we can and we can model this uh, in animals and there are a number of behavioral tasks that are that can be used across you know multiple different species so that we can understand how the you know the brain circuits or how how changes in brain circuits actually impact on those kinds of behaviors mm-hmm. and the 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 ultimate end goal of this uh, research is it with a view to treatments or just absolutely understanding absolutely so so some of the treatments for ocd you know there's drug treatments so if, if we can so the the issue with taking with taking drugs systemically or you know so the standard you know taking a pill mm-hmm. um is that that's that drug is going to hit all of the the receptors in in the body all of the the cells that have you know that express these receptors and it's going to have it might have some really positive outcomes for you say if it, if it acts on a particular area of the brain mm-hmm. And, it, and that that helps you with with some of the symptoms that you might be suffering from, but it might hit another part of the brain, and, it, and it, if it affects that part of the brain, then you might actually have some unwanted side effect okay. types. So, yeah. so I guess in an ideal world, we'd be able to target you know specific areas, specific neurons in the brain, even mm-hmm. with uh, and activate those neurons in some way, either you know, with one of these neurochemical specific methods or something like that. And you, and you, you would be able to reduce the symptoms that you don't want yeah. without, without having all of these extra side effects. That, okay. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of value in understanding not only 
which areas of the brain are involved, mm. um, but also which which neurotransmitters, which chemicals in the brain are are involved. And if you can put those two things together, maybe someday we'll be able to develop a treatment that that is you know so so specific that you get rid of the the bad stuff and yeah. you know don't cause any additional problems. So at what point, because you don't work in academic research anymore, so at what point did you sort of start to think that maybe that path wasn't perhaps for you? I think it, it, it may have been in the back of my head for, for quite a while, actually. So so academia, um, it's quite competitive uh, job sector to, yeah. <laughs> to be in. Um, and I, I had some early on, like in my PhD watching some some labs really struggle with funding mm-hmm. and how the PI how the, how the principal investigator of those labs uh, how, it, how it affected them and 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 the, the, the type of role that they actually had to play mm. uh, and the, the the sorts of decisions they had to make and then on top of that having to be so passionate about the scientific question that they're asking that all of these challenges and all of these obstacles didn't matter because that that pursuit of the science you know, yeah. kind of was was more important than any of that. So they yeah. would, they would you know work through that. And I I I liked doing science. Um, I feel like I was I was you know fairly decent as a scientist. Um, but uh, I just I never had that sense that I was excited enough about any particular scientific question that I could work through all of those other challenges. Yeah. I was much more comfortable in the role of uh, sort of being a, a go-to person or a support person within mm-hmm. the group. And I felt like that was really, that was really the thing that, that interested me mm-hmm. was, was sort of supporting other people's work. Mm-hmm. Cause you've mentioned in your, your undergrad degree and your early career, you were sort of, taking on these small representative advocacy type roles um and that seems like it's it's been a theme that's come back uh, in your career and what what is it about those kind of roles that appeal to you do you think maybe sometimes I get a little bit caught up with like a sense of righteousness (laughs) (laughs) but I think I I I feel like first of all I I'm I'm speaking of compulsive behaviors I'm I'm a compulsive helper um (laughs) And I, I think because I feel comfortable being a voice for people who don't, who don't feel like, who don't have the confidence to speak up on, on their own behalf, mm-hmm. uh, that it feels like kind of a good niche for me to, to fit into. Um, it's just something I sort of fell into naturally without, I guess, without really thinking about it at yeah. all. And, and, um, Again, I think it's just this 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 sense of 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 wanting to make sure that people are are heard mm-hmm. and represented, and and I think also I've been lucky for most of my life to always sort of fit into a, a, a bigger community, and I, I think it's it's so important to me that. Uh, people don't feel like they are sort of alone in a crowd of people yes so that they always feel like there's some place that they can go to and 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 you know talk to somebody and and know that they're going to be listened to and that that person might you know sort of stand in and and um, stand up for them if, if they need it yeah how did you find the process of because moving from academic research to professional services I guess in some ways 
that could feel like you're sort of deviating from an expected path. How mm. how did you find the process? Was it scary or was it sort of liberating to actually look beyond academia? <laughs> I think it was, it was it was a combination of 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 well, I mean, it was it was scary because I knew it was going to be a big career change mm-hmm. and I didn't really know exactly what to anticipate. Uh, it was liberating because it's been a long road, I suppose, to get here. I started in in Cambridge as a postdoc in uh, in 2011, like before the Office of Postdoctoral Affairs existed, and I was able to get involved in it on a couple levels. So in the postdocs of Cambridge Society as my departmental representative, so I represented psychology. So part of my motivation, I think, for connecting into the PDOC Society and starting the committee in my department was this, again, the sense of sort of building a community and, mm. and um, wanting to feel part of something where, where everyone felt like they were contributing. And that really, ha- that part hasn't changed for me. Yeah. So, so in, some, in some ways, I feel it was a natural progression to step into a role where I'm kind of now, that's what I'm, that's what I'm paid to do. Yeah. <laughs> so instead of this being the thing that I do as, as sort of a hobby on the side, mm-hmm. you know, or, or because I'm passionate about it, I can still be passionate about it. But but now it's my full time job. Yeah, essentially. Uh, and and it was liberating, I think, because I I had for so long felt like I I had to hold on to oh I have to go into a career that uses my electrical engineering degree or I you know I have to go into a career that uses my my neuroscience PhD. Mm. And when I look back, you know, when I reflect back. Mm. What I'm doing now is is really much a much better fit for the type of person that I am, for the things that I get ex- really, really just you know, downright passionate about. Yeah. In that sense, yeah, I did kind of feel kind of liberated. I felt like I've let go of those things that I thought I had to to hold on to because you know I'd invested that time or or or, or people had invested in me, mm-hmm. and I always had this sort of sense of obligation for people who took a chance on me. So, you know, the person who took a, people who took a chance on me doing a PhD in neuroscience when I, I had kind of a limited uh, background in, in, in biology and, and, and people who took a chance on me. Um, I think what was particularly liberating was understanding that they were also supportive of me pursuing the thing that I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that, but I also kind of wish I could go back and tell my, tell myself of yeah, the past. Tell your younger self. That this is the case. So, so hopefully maybe somebody listening to this will, will pick up on that and, mm-hmm. and hear this and, and uh, realize that it is, it is about, it is your career journey. It's not anybody else's. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, think of the things that, that, that excite you, that, that make you, you know, wake up in the morning and, and go into the office, you know, smiling. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, as you've said, you've mentioned that you you have used things that you learned in what you were doing before in the oh, thing absolutely. that you went on to do. It's not like that was ever wasted for yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, I mean, I'm I'm now I'm doing things I'm working in a way on behalf of, of postdocs and having having worked as a postdoc for about a decade, actually, um, it's all of that experience an understanding of what it is to be a postdoc, what it, you know, the, the, the challenges that you face as a postdoc uh, is incredibly useful in the, in the job that I have now, where I am, I now I'm in a position to try and, to try and help other postdocs through those same challenges and, and um, work in a group that, that can speak on behalf of postdocs to, to make some changes in the system to, and to make 
to make the whole postdoctoral experience better. Mm-hmm. Mm. So what is involved in your role now? So I, I work on a, in a couple of different areas. I am currently helping to run and uh, develop our researcher development program. And, and actually, I say researcher development, it's, it kind of encompasses a lot of things. So it's uh, pulling together a program, professional development activities um, in, in collaboration with uh, other services at the university, including researcher development program to offer uh, training um, and informational sessions and so on uh, for postdocs uh, specifically. I also am involved uh, in in running our fellowship program, uh, which is we are looking at the at postdocs who are kind of at the at the point in their their postdoctoral journey where they're looking at their next step, which could be going on and starting their own lab, it could be uh, spinning out a, a company, or maybe going to work in uh, science policy in, in a number of different directions, but they're, they're, they're poised at that point in their career. Their experience and their contributions so far indicate that they, they have the potential to do amazing things, not just sort of in their, in their immediate sphere, but sort of more broadly, so um, with, with, with greater societal impact. And we provide an opportunity for these individuals to get some very bespoke leadership training Mm-hmm. and an opportunity to work in groups on projects related to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Mm-hmm. It's a fellowship that kind of gives them this, this platform to, to, to kind of help them take what they've been doing and then really create some impact um, in the world. Wow. And see, we also have a postdoctoral mentoring program uh, where we match postdocs up with mentors from from academia, from industry, and and from from third sector uh, roles. And when the lockdown started, you got involved in another cool project. How did you how did you get involved with that? So I, I think our our office in general is it's a large group of compulsive helpers <laughs> like myself, and. Um, I think when we when we went into lockdown, um, our head office in particular saw some some opportunities where we could offer some administrative and other support to projects at, at the beginning of the lockdown that would really um, again help help the broader community. But the project that I uh, ended up being involved in was setting up a warehouse at one of the colleges. Uh, to collect PPE donations. And this was at the very beginning of the lockdown. So uh, it was, to to start off with, it was largely donations from labs that were having to shut down. Okay. So so what was happening was, uh, I mean, it was was incredible, actually. So people were really, really keen to to get involved, to to help out, um, knowing that there were PPE shortages and, and supply chain shortages across the UK and that a lot of equipment that's used in, in labs mm-hmm. is not dissimilar from what you might use in, in a hospital, for instance. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, so things like, um, like nitrile gloves and, and surgical masks and, and so on. So a lot of donations were, were, were being 
sent, but there wasn't sort of a coordinated, there wasn't a place to send them initially and mm-hmm. or a coordinated way of, of accepting the donations and then sending them out to to hospitals and, and others who, who would need them. Right. Okay. So yeah. I was offered an opportunity to help set this up and along with um, two other volunteers from the Institute for Manufacturing, uh, Liz George and um, Rob Glue, uh, we essentially went off and, and from scratch had to develop a, a warehouse sort of collection and distribution center. Wow. Um, and uh, Rob actually is a, a PhD student whose uh, project is focused on supply chain. So he was oh, that's, a, a, a per- that's perfect nice. individual <laughs> to have on board. Uh, from, from that perspective, I, I brought my experience with, with lab equipment into the mix. And uh, in, a, in a, the space of about a week, we, we managed to set up something where, where we had a, a uh, more organized means of, of people having a place where they could come and they could drop off these donations and we could track what was coming in. And we, we used a, a system developed at the Institute for Manufacturing called Itemit, which uh, allowed us to, to log these things as they, as they came in. And then, gave you know, for instance, gave we could we could send a list to the to Adam Brooks, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and they could see what we had and say, right, we need X number of masks or X number of of surgical gowns or, yeah. or whatever, and we could and we could then arrange to send them over. Okay, and yeah. it kind of became this uh, like an on-demand um, supply warehouse, so that if there was a, a break in the supply chain or if they were if if anyone was struggling to get these supplies in. Mm-hmm. we could turn it around much quicker yeah it was it was a, I've, I've learned I've learned a lot about supply chains and <laughs> and things I never never thought I'd, I'd uh, be involved in but it was yeah. it was an incredible experience and I think I think I felt given the anxieties you know that everyone had around COVID-19 and the uncertainty you know, we still have a lot of uncertainties but mm. I was watching every day on my you know Facebook feed people in my home state of Michigan, um, you know, nurses and, 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 and people having to wear, you know, homemade mm. cloth masks and all that because they, they couldn't get enough, you know, proper you know, medical grade masks. And then, yeah. and I just, it, it just made me, it, it allowed me to feel like I was doing something to, to, again, to help the, the broader community and to, you know, to, to, just to try and provide a, a, a source of, you know, these, these, this personal protective equipment so that yeah. we could slow down the, the spread of this, this virus. Mm. Uh, so obviously my, my, you know, I wasn't doing research anymore and my research would probably never have contributed to, to the understanding of COVID-19, but uh, I guess in this way, I, I felt, I, I really felt like I, I was, um, I was contributing, I was helping instead of, you know, kind of sitting and worrying. Yeah. Yeah, something practical to yeah yeah to do yeah, and has how the warehouse is functioning because obviously the situation has evolved slightly. Has the how the warehouse is functioning changed since the start of lockdown? Yeah, so in in a couple of ways. So obviously, start of lockdown, uh, I would say a majority of our donations were from uh, labs that were that were closing down for for the lockdown period, and uh, as as those um, 
supplies, you know, were obviously depleted by the donations. Um, that sort of stopped a couple of weeks in. Um, there was a there was a bit of press around our warehouse on um, local BBC and ITV news, mm-hmm. and then so we saw a, a, an influx of of smaller sort of personal donations. Uh, some of which have actually continued to come through. So there's there are individuals in the Cambridge area, for instance, who are three have 3D printers. Oh wow! Aren't getting business for those printers now, so they mm. you know, they, they do this for a living, um, self-employed, and yeah. they are. So they've decided to use their 3D printers to print visors. Oh wow! Um, we have alumni from and other connections or collaborators in, in China mm-hmm. who in return for, I guess, as I understand it, we had individuals in, in, from our university that donated PPE to China at the, the beginning of the outbreak break, and they're now sending donations okay. back yeah. um, in favor. Way. So I, I would say a lot of our, a lot of our donations now are, are more of that nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, I could name check like all of them. Honestly, we've, we've had, I can't think of I can't think of many departments that haven't donated yeah. something to the effort. So you know it's it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, so can can individuals donate as well as it, organizations? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're if you were interested in donating, um, you should email COVID-response at cam.ac.uk, and um, you'll be given information about how how to proceed with the donation. So there's a form to fill in and a couple of other little things. Um, but if somebody was interested in, in sending in a donation, that would be the way to do it. That's it from us at We Are The University. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to head over to the iTunes store, Spotify or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a five-star rating. I'm Jenny Hayward, and I'll see you next time.